0: Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live.
1: It is really funny. It's almost like they don't know how to have real sexual intimacy because porn has sort of turned it into this sort of fantasy land that doesn't resemble much of what real life is like. Sometimes exercising too much can make you eat too much. And so what you want to do is you want to walk like crazy, walk as much as possible and exercise just enough, but not too much. Starting to sound familiar, isn't it? Just like we talked about with nutrition. And so I would say for the average beginner, three times per week, Then why are we here? And if we can't take those lessons and we're going to keep them to ourselves, then from my perspective, then they beat us.
0: What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features an amazing naturopath named Dr. Jade Teta. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Jade Teta. So I wanted to have Jade on the show, not just because he's an insanely smart doctor when it comes to how the body functions, but because he knows how to put things in layman's terms and super simple, plain language that we can all understand and use. So Jade is an integrated physician, author, and sought-after expert in the realm of metabolism and self-development. He spent the last 25 years immersed in the study of strength and conditioning, hormonal metabolism, and the psychology of change. He's the founder and the creator of the international health and fitness company, The Metabolic Effect, and the author of The Metabolic Effect Diet. Okay, so why do I want him on the show? I wanted him on the show because I interviewed his former wife, Jill Coleman, a few months back, And Jill shared some super intimate details on the events that led to their divorce and how they're now amazing friends and Look, I don't really care about their divorce, but what I care about is what we can use when a relationship doesn't work, how we can grow from it, share it, and actually still care about the other person. And I think there's just a lot of nuggets here. So in this conversation, we talk about everything from hormonal imbalance, building muscle, stoic philosophy, pornography. And fidelity, folks. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and at Jade Teta and let us know what you thought. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Jade. Jade, welcome to the show. Hey Rob, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it, man. It's great to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm super pumped to have you on the show. So, first of all, just thank you for making the time. Yeah man and thank you
1: for your work. I really
0: appreciate everything you do. Yeah, you got it. So, here's where I thought we would start. I thought we would start with a few questions on where you grew up to to just kind of give us a feel for what the early years was like growing up in North Carolina. So, maybe you could tell us a story about something perhaps your parents did with you as a kid which sort of typifies what your experience was like from, say, ages 5 to 10.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. My uh, my parents grew up in the Manhattan area, and I was born in New York. And so I was a northern kid raised in the south. And it, that was a really interesting uh, sort of, I guess, dynamic. And my parents really didn't know coming from up north, it's very segregated in the south. And so for, probably one of the things that I think will typify my life and the way I grew up is my parents, my dad used to actually drive to the projects and pick up kids uh, in the South to go to football practice. He was the coach on one of our Little League football teams. And, you know, at the time, I look back now and think how weird that was for, you know, a white guy in the South to be doing that. And because I think we were in, uh, you know, sort of from a Northern background and just not a very segregated background, just the types of People, my parents were the kind of, you know, sort of these hippie liberal progressive types. And it was just that's kind of if you want to get a sense of what my life was like sort of early on, it was sort of like that, that I came up with this idea that um, I was no better, no worse than anyone else, that everyone was sort of uh, equal, that we wanted to celebrate uh, individuals and their signature strengths in the world. And my parents at a very young age, you know, for me, I got that message constantly that I could do whatever I wanted, that all people were equal, to treat people with kindness and fairness. And that's kind of how sort of I was brought up. And it's, you know, when I think about it now, it's like such a lucky sort of upbringing when you think about it. And, you know, a lot of times uh, people will tell you or teach you or try to you know, sort of, I don't know, preach at you, but my parents were, you know, really action oriented people. So I just picked up from watching them do what they did with other people. And that's how, you know, I think I kind of got my way of being in the world. So yeah, it's an interesting question, an interesting place to, you know, kind of start off because I haven't thought about that in such a long time, but yeah, it was a, it was a pretty amazing upbringing from that regard with my parents. So I grew up in in Queens, in New York,
0: and uh, you know, used, used to go into Manhattan a lot. So a couple of a couple of things that are hitting me as you were speaking. First one is your last name. I want I want to get it pronounced properly. Is it Teta or Teta?
1: <laughs> yeah, this is gonna be hilarious, Rob, because it's it's. Obviously, I'm Italian, so it's, it's teta is the, is the right pronunciation, but we in my family pronounce it tita. And I don't know why they made that change somewhere way back when we first came over. I think we're three generations in the United States, but I think it's because teta means breast in Spanish. And so it's sort of a derogatory term. So, so it's funny, you know, like people often get, it's it's sort of like, you know, it's the slang for, for breast in Spanish. And so we, it's pronounced Teta obviously, but we pronounce it Tita was, it's it's funny because I get made fun about that all the time. I was just in Mexico and they were laughing at me the whole time, you know, Dr. Teta, Dr. Teta. So. That's so
0: awesome. (laughs) So your, your dad is
1: Italian. Yes. My dad is Italian and Greek. My mom is Portuguese, uh, you know, mainly Portuguese and some Northern European, but from Italy directly or two or three generations. You said he's one generation
0: removed. Yeah. One. one. Okay. Interesting. My mom's from Naples, Italy. Well, her grandma, her, my mother's mother is from Naples. So I definitely got the Italian thing. Okay, good. So, so let's kind of move forward a little bit. Let's talk about high school. What did you think that you were going to be when you were in high school?
1: Uh, You know, it's funny. I had I had uh, one thing that I wanted to be more than anything else, and that was uh, an NFL football player. I was very good at uh, football. Actually, I could say except for about two weeks after the movie Top Gun came out, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. But (laughs) I think all dudes my age wanted to do that after they saw the movie Top Gun. But no, NFL football was sort of my big big dream. And sort of in the back of my mind was uh, my, my uh, grandfather was a physician. And so that influence was there and something that I was interested in. But yeah, football was sort of my life in high school.
0: All right. So you mentioned medical school. So I want to kind of dig into that a little bit. Out of the thousands of professions you could have chosen, what were the circumstances that led you to become a doctor of naturopathy, if I got that correctly?
1: Yeah, no, that's correct. I mean, it's uh, actually, you know, it's funny. We all have these very pivotal times in our lives and coming up conventional medicine was, you know, the thing and alternative medicine was looked, you know, really down upon. It was seen as sort of witchcraft medicine. It's not, it did not have the popularity that it has today. And for me, uh, you know, I was very much into football, and as a result of that, got into health and fitness, nutrition, weight training. I was very much into that. And but I laugh at this now, and I tell people this is actually true. I started probably personal training and writing diet and exercise programs probably at the age of 15, writing programs for the guys on my football team, even their parents. And so I was very much into health and fitness at a young age, and I studied biochemistry in undergrad. And I just guess I never gave it a second thought. I was like, oh, I'm going to medical school and this will be what I do. And I'm going to learn how to take care of people and teach healthy lifestyles. But when I got to the point where I started looking at the curriculum and started applying to medical school, I was shocked at the time. I remember just being surprised because I never thought about it, that there was no nutrition taught and there was no exercise taught and that really man that threw me for a loop because it sort of uh, crushed my dreams i was like i do not want to go into a field where you know i'm just doing drugs and surgery i mean not that those things are bad it just wasn't for me i mean those things can be life saving i just didn't want To do those things. I wanted to teach. I wanted to do what I was doing in the personal training world and nutrition world. And I wanted something that would teach me that. And so I went through a period of time there where I was a little bit depressed and and seeking and just like, I'm not going to go to conventional medical school. I was thinking maybe I'll go and then I'll do my own thing. And then I found this school, my older brother actually, who was getting his master's at the time. Uh, found this school called Bastyr University, which was a little known school up in Seattle, Washington, that trained primary care physicians in alternative and complementary medicine. And as soon as I heard about that, I was like, you know, that's it. I'm going, I'm going there. I don't know, man. You know, I don't know if you if you have a sense of this, Rob, but for some reason, I have always been probably more confident and more sure of myself than I should have been. <laughs> it's gotten me in trouble at times. But in this particular instance, um, I knew I just knew. And despite the fact that my tribe, my family was not necessarily on board uh, other than my older brother, I pulled the trigger on that and then just haven't looked back since. And uh, I'll give you guys one more caveat here, because. Once I did that, I kind of fell into this pattern of essentially saying, look, this is my life to live. I I do not have to fall into the stories that everyone else is going to put out there for me. I do not have to fall into the story of the typical conventional MD or the typical alternative ND." And I started just deciding at that point I was going to make my own way, create my own profession and be sort of this hybrid health and fitness professional who teaches in the realms of, you know, mindset. Uh, muscle metabolism, I call it mind muscle metabolism, because those are my areas of expertise. And I sort of early on and at Bastyr University decided that's what I was going to do. And I was going to be more of an entrepreneur who taught those things rather than a traditional, uh, you know, sort of naturopathic physician or conventional medical doctor.
0: You know, it's so interesting. You mentioned story, right? So story, the story we tell ourselves about what's possible or what's not possible is everything.
1: I I agree, man. I mean, look, to me, and it takes us a very long time to understand that these are stories. Most of the stories we're living are stories we have not even written ourselves. There's stories we bought into because our culture, our family, the people around us has said, this is the way to sort of live your life. And, you know, one of my favorite movies, I don't know how many people have seen this movie, but it's the movie, The Matrix. And in that movie, it's really, I think, a metaphor for story, how we can be blinded by the life that we think we are supposed to be living. Meanwhile, we have sort of this superpower and this sort of, uh, other thing pulling us to do something that we're more meant to do. And part of what I think every human has to do on this planet, one of the first things we have to do, and some of us do it at an early age and some of us, you know, sort of do it at a later age is that we have to discover and create the story we want to begin telling instead of living the stories other people have told for us. So once you identify the new story that you want,
0: how do you interrupt the pattern and change the story so that the new story is more empowering? See, the
1: first story I had to overcome was, for me, what I call the dumb jock story. Uh, Most people coming up during, I mean, we now know through research and the dumb jock story is really not true. Most, you know, people who pursue athletics and work out a lot actually tend to do better cognitively or mentally. But back when I was coming up, it was believed that if you were engaged in sports, that you weren't that smart. And I bought into that story kind of early on. And to break that story, I did several things now that, I mean, I'm sure you're going to be like, wow, that's kind of interesting because you and I sort of know some of the science and practice of this, but I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. I just knew I had two things that happened to me in high school. One was my dad uh, sat down with me. One day I came home from a football practice. And I ironically, I had skipped that day of school, but loved football so much. I went back and my dad sat me down and said, you know, the school called today and said that you missed 60 some days or half you know, like a third or a half of the school year last year and that you're starting to skip again this year. He goes, what are you doing? And he basically looked at me, and my dad is a loving guy, and he just said, "Look i love you i 've got you know three other kids you 're the only one that 's messing up you 're going to have to decide at some point you know what you want to do with your life and About two weeks later, I had a situation where my my high school English teacher called me out in front of class and told me I was a loser and wasn 't going to get into college and would flunk out and At that point, I kind of made a decision that uh, I was kind of a Again, confident kid. And I was just like, they don't know me. You know, they don't know me. And and I see why they see me that way, but that's not who I'm going to be. And I started dressing differently. Literally, I started, I asked my mom to take me shopping. I, I got nice clothes. I started dressing differently. I even bought myself glasses. Uh, you know, f- glass frames. I didn't need glasses at the time, but I've got those so I could look smarter and appear smarter. And I started reading at the f- at first, it was like, you know, I went from reading muscle and fitness and stuff like that to start reading other books because I was just like, this is what smart people do. And so I started kind of imitating it a little bit. You know, people say this whole thing, fake it until you make it. I like a better saying, be it until you see it. And I was sort of being this smart guy, um, before I actually could see it in myself. And that was the first part of me breaking that script. I just changed everything about myself. I started going to school. I started reading. I started dressing differently. I even started wearing glasses. I cut my hair differently. I did everything differently. And at the time, I didn't understand some of the science. like We now know about enclosed cognition, that the way you dress can change the way you think. And we know this stuff now. But at the time, I didn't really get all that. I just knew that I wanted to be something different And so I started living into that in a very different way. And same thing when I wanted to become a writer. Uh, You know, I was a physician. I was not seen as someone who was a writer. And I thought to myself, well, what do writers do? What do authors do? They read and they write every single day. And so I started to do that. I also started going to conferences where other writers were. And this is the way that I have done this several times in my life when I wanted to become an entrepreneur. I started saying, how is it that entrepreneurs behave? What are the things that they do? How do they act? I didn't sit around thinking about it. I just decided I'm going to duplicate their behaviors. I'm going to start learning everything I can about what they do and actually mimicking them to some degree until I could become that. And all of a sudden, you wake up one day and you're like, you know, it's funny, I've been almost method acting this story for so long, and I didn't even realize when the method acting turned into the real thing. And all of a sudden, you wake up one day and you are this thing and you are this new story and you can't even, you can remember the old story and you can look at it with fondness and almost see it as like a you know, a little piece of the puzzle that you needed to get where you wanted to go. But I've done that sort of over and over and over again. And as I've watched other successful people, I've seen them do the exact same thing. It's so interesting the way that they will, they all seem to have coaches. They all seem to be watching and acting, but it's very different than this idea of the secret, right? Where it's just like, think positive thoughts. It's like they take massive action and dress differently, behave differently, do differently and immerse themselves in this different way of being in this different story. And that's what I think makes the difference.
0: Yeah, it really does. You know, one of the things as you were speaking that I'm thinking about, which is um, what I've been taught from people who kind of do this for a living. They, you know, they say, look, you want to change, people look to change their actions first, but you really need to change who you're being first because that's going to dictate the actions. So it was kind of brilliant the way that you had this, you know, massive pattern, pattern interrupt with, you know, your teacher and your dad. And then you stepped into a new identity with glasses and clothing. And then before you knew it, the actions were lining up consistent with the identity that you shifted to. So that that was a great answer. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about how you wound up doing what it is that you're doing. But first, I want to define what it is that you're doing. So what exactly is a doctor of naturopathy and how does it differ essentially from a medical doctor?
1: Yes, really great question. So, you know, when you go see a conventional medical doctor, right, they'll sit down with you, they'll spend five minutes with you. They'll ask about, you know, signs and symptoms, what's going on with your headache, what makes it better or worse. And it's a very quick sort of thing. Maybe they'll run some blood labs. What they're looking for is they're looking for a disease, right? They want to make a diagnosis so that they then can go into their sort of cookbook and essentially say, okay, headache of unknown origin, maybe migraines, maybe there's some aura with it. We're going to give this particular medication. And they do very good work. But what a naturopath does is very different because we're looking at before you are in a disease state, and I'll use diabetes as an example. So in diabetes, once your fasting blood sugar levels go above 120, you are now defined as diabetic. However, normal blood sugar should be around 70 to 80. So what happens to someone who's in the 100 to 110 range? They're not yet diabetic, but we know there's some dysfunction going on with them. What happens with a naturopathic physician or someone who practices what I call functional medicine is we're looking at when you move from healthy to dysfunction, because before you get to disease, you're going to go into a dysfunctional state that's not yet a disease state. and I spend all of my time there in that dysfunctional state trying to correct that before it gets to a disease. That's mainly what a naturopathic physician does, which is why we do mostly lifestyle medicine. You know, So we pay attention to the way you're sleeping. We pay attention to what you're eating. We pay attention to the way you're moving and exercising, the way you think, all of those kinds of behaviors. And then we put corrective actions in place primarily using lifestyle medicine, exercise, food, supplements, herbs, and then if required, you know, medications. Here's an example. If you went to the doctor and they found you had high blood pressure, they would say, okay, Rob, here's your blood pressure medication. Come back in six months and we'll see how you're doing. If you came to me with high blood pressure, What I would essentially do is I would say, well, how high is it? Is it dangerous for you, Rob? If it's dangerous for you, then I'm putting you on a medication. If it's borderline, then I'm going to put lifestyle things in place and see if we can correct it before you go on the medication. By the way, if I do end up putting you on high blood pressure medication, my goal is still to get you off of it. Oftentimes, conventional medicine is like, okay, you're on your blood pressure medications. Keep doing that. And what I, what we do is we're looking at it like, how can we restore complete function and health versus how can we keep you from disease? Does that make sense?
0: It does. So a couple of questions popped up around it. Uh, first question is, are you, do you have the ability or is it within your scope of practice to be able to prescribe any drug that you want or are there limitations with what you can and can't do?
1: Yeah, there's limitations with what we can do. So I primarily deal in antibiotics. I prescribe, you know, hormones, you know, testosterone therapies, HRT for women. That's primarily uh, what we do, uh, you know. Uh, and any of the drugs that we can't prescribe are going to be things like, you know, obviously the opioids big big deal with that. So pain medications are not on my scope, and neither are um, most mood medications are not on my scope, but pretty much everything else. And just so everyone sort of listening sort of understands, naturopathic physicians are not licensed in all states. So I think it's, what, 17 states now, the whole West Coast, and then spotted throughout uh, the country, uh, naturopathic physicians are licensed. What's interesting, though, for me, is that didn't matter for me whether they were licensed or not. I went actually to North Carolina Where they're not licensed and opened up a consulting practice. Because, from my perspective, in naturopathic medicine, there's a principle called docere, which essentially means doctor as teacher. And so I always resonated with the idea that my primary job as a physician is to teach. And that's why I started writing books and doing online programs and moving more into sort of an entrepreneurial realm where I could teach online. And that's sort of, I think, one of the major differences.
0: So the treatment plan that you're prescribing, and we're going to get into some areas that you sort of work with, and I'll I'll kind of pick your brain around that. But the treatment plans that you're prescribing, I would assume in large part will include some lifestyle changes. So, you know, when somebody's got high blood pressure and they've got a, you know, a big giant belly and it's obvious why they have high blood pressure. They want a pill, you know, they want a pill to drop the the blood pressure so they don't have to do the work. How do you get them, how do you get leverage on them to recognize the behavioral changes they need to make and actually get them to comply and make those changes.
1: Yeah, interesting. I have two answers for that, but the first thing I'll say here is sometimes uh, there's no choice. Like, you know, I'm all I am a conventional medical physician minded and also alternative minded. And so, if someone has high blood pressure and it's, you know, very high, they need to be on blood pressure medication. So, I put them on those and then yes, lifestyle medicine is always a piece of this. Okay, so that's the first sort of thing here. However, then it comes down to this idea of what you said. That's what most people want. They sort of want this sort of pill. And how do we leverage the change? Well, here's the way you don't do it. People do not respond to scare tactics. So there's a lot of people that say, well, if you don't do this, you're going to end up having a stroke or you're going to end up having a heart attack. That stuff does not work. This is why we have people who can see, you know, uh, lung cancer is in their future when they're smoking and or people already have lung cancer and they continue to smoke. Why is that? And what I usually do, and this goes into sort of the mindset stuff I teach and I know you work with as well, is that to me, when I see someone in this state, what I essentially do is I'm like, they're in a crisis of meaning in my mind, meaning, meaning in life. What are they here for? It's almost like they have forgotten. And I, so I'll give you an example of, of a client of mine who's actually really close to me. But this particular person is wants to be the best father they can be, wants to pass on sort of uh, lessons for his children, yet he's obese and has high blood pressure. I can't scare him into that. But what I can say is you do understand that the reason why your child is now becoming obese and not paying attention to their health is because you don't. And part of your meaning, you say, is to be an inspiration and a role model to your children and people around you. And once you tap people into that, the thing that they are on the planet for, the thing that gives their life meaning and makes them feel like they matter, then they, and you can tie their health issues to that and their exercise habits and eating to that, then they begin to change. And it's really about finding what that is for each person. We, my belief is every single one of us have this desire to be great and not in an egotistical way, not in a way of like, I want to be great so everyone notices me. I mean, obviously we're human and we do have a need for status and achievement, but what our major need is for is meaning. We want our lives to matter. We want to know that when we leave this planet, we made a difference and there's certain people that matter more to us. Children are part of this. And so if you can tap people into why they are here and why their healthcare matters so they can do that job, it starts to create that leverage that you need for them to change and that is a discussion that happens over you know a longer period of time which is why i spend Upwards of an hour with my clients, whereas a conventional doctor would spend five to ten minutes with their clients. It's one of the reasons why I went into consulting practice and do more life coaching than you know just sitting across the desk from someone because you can't have these types of discussions with people when you only have ten minutes with them. If that makes sense? No, which is why, which is why MDs. You know,
0: not to knock MDs, they certainly have their place, but they're just they're writing the script because they have ten minutes and they're like, "Your blood pressure's high. Here, take this." Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. You you brought up an interesting point, which is people will do more for others than they will, you know, others that they care about, let's say, than they will uh, for themselves very often. So what I'd like to do is I was thinking about, there's so many different directions I can go in with you because you're so knowledgeable on so many areas that I thought what I would do is I have about four or five areas that I think are probably the most common areas that people talk about. And I know that you have expertise in. So I'd like to kind of get into the weeds on a few of these and maybe we can offer people some some help in these areas. So the first one is metabolism. I want to start with metabolism because it's a it, it's something that comes up a lot and I think what we can do is first define when people talk about metabolism what exactly are they referring to what is somebody's metabolism?
1: Yeah, you know, the best way to think about metabolism is it's, you know, it's the same way you think about your computer program. Like when you open up Word and you start doing a Word document, this is essentially how your metabolism works. When you eat food, when you're exposed to light, when you have to go for a run or when you have to respond to stress, your body essentially opens up its computer Software. And that is essentially hormones that send signals all around the body. And what essentially the metabolism is doing is it's basically trying to help you survive. And so it is responding, it's the way your body responds to the outside world and tells the cells inside what to do. So here's an example that we've all kind of heard about. Um, let's say you're, you're walking through the woods, hiking through you know, uh, a trail, and you run into a black bear. And you go into this fight, flight, or freeze response, sort of the sympathetic response. This is your metabolism saying, "Up, oh, there's potential danger here, and I have got to get ready to mount a response. What am I going to do with my fuel reserves? What am I going to do with my glucose reserves, my fat reserves? How am I going to respond to this threat? How am I going to start pumping blood? How am I going to start getting more oxygen? All of that kind of thing. This is what the metabolism does. And so the metabolism is very much like a stress barometer. Its whole job is to help you respond to stress and then get back to balance. So if you understand that about the metabolism, you'll understand that when you are constantly subjecting your metabolism to one stress or another, and when I say stress, I don't necessarily mean just emotional stress. I mean eating too much or eating too little. I mean sleeping too much or sleeping too little. I mean exercising too much or exercising too little. The metabolism works on the Goldilocks principle, right? Not too much, not too little. But just right. What it is trying to do is get you back to balance. And what we oftentimes do is we try to force the metabolism to do what we want it to do. We want to lose weight. So we're going to try to force it to do what we want, not understanding that the metabolism is adaptive and reactive to everything we do. So it's a changeable system. So think about this, Rob, right? Here's why people run into problems with the metabolism. Think about a changeable, adaptive, reactive system like the metabolism. And you are going to try to Adjust the metabolism, or or get it to do what you want it to do by doing the same thing over and over again. By just trying to eat less and exercising more continuously. What do you think an adaptable, changeable system is going to do in response to that? It'll fight it. It's going to fight it. It's going to adapt, and it, you're, that's going to work for two weeks max. And then you're going to start getting hungry. You're going to start getting cravings. You're going to start getting you know energy lows, and your metabolism is going to slow down to conserve things. And so. The one thing that I could teach people about the metabolism is the following. It is a stress barometer and you have to take care of it and take the stress load off of it. It's not a calculator. It's not simple like that. It's also not a chemistry set. If you want to know what the metabolism is most like, it's like a boomerang or a seesaw or a pendulum or anything that when you push against it, it will push back against you. The metabolism, you want to know if your metabolism is under stress? Just ask yourself, how hungry am I been feeling? What's my energy levels been like? What's my cravings like? What's my libido like? What's my exercise performance and exercise recovery like? What's my sleep and my mood like? A healthy, balanced metabolism has sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings, exercise performance, exercise recovery, and libido. All of those things are going to feel good and vital and balanced. As soon as they begin to go the other direction, that's when you know your metabolism is out of balance. And the standard way that most people try to approach the metabolism creates hunger, creates cravings, creates an unpredictable, unstable energy level. And this is why they can't get a hold of their metabolism. So rule number one is rather than just indiscriminately eating less food and trying to exercise more, what we want to do is we want to play metabolic detective and do the things that keep hunger stable, that lower cravings, that make energy predictable and stable. And then from there, then you can, from a place of strength, then you can push on the metabolism a little bit. Once those things are all stable, then you can maybe cut your macros down or cut your calories down a little bit. Always making sure that you're keeping the metabolism happy. When you do that, you're going to see results.
0: You know, this is really interesting because it's such, it's so counterintuitive to how we are programmed uh, socially to think, you know, we look down, we see a belly, we go, shit, I got to stop eating. And that is not the way to do it. So, you gave you gave us some tips but I want to kind of I want to kind of put a bigger point on this. What is the playbook that somebody can use to one identify whether or not their metabolism is in fact out of whack? I know you mentioned stress. Mm-hmm. And two is when they see it, how do they not throw the pendulum in the opposite direction? and make the s- small changes to allow the adaptability that you talked about. Yeah.
1: Well, I'll give you an example. Here's an interesting example, right? We all know what a couch potato is. Someone who sits on the couch doesn't exercise at all and eats a ton. And we all know that these people tend to be hungry all the time, have cravings all the time, have really poor energy. That tells you their metabolism is under stress. I call this HEC, hunger, energy, cravings, or heck. When your heck is in check, your metabolism is balanced. When your heck is out of check, your metabolism is under stress. So a couch potato has heck out of check. Now a dieter, someone who's exercising like crazy and eating like a bird, also has hunger, energy, and cravings, heck out of check. So the first part of your question is, how do you know when you're out of balance? You know when heck goes out of check. Now how do you get it back in balance? Well, we know for most people... We know through research that there are certain foods that are going to stabilize hunger, balance energy, and reduce cravings, and do it with very little calorie load. These are going to be what I call protein, fiber, and water, PFW. Protein-rich foods, fiber-rich foods, and water-rich foods. If you want to know what the playbook is on this, just think of the following. Soups, salads, scrambles, and shakes. Soups, salads, scrambles, and shakes. Soups are water-based. Make sure that in the beginning, you don't really want a whole lot of starch and fat on that. Salad is vegetable-based. You don't want a whole lot of starch and fat. Protein shakes, these can be useful, convenient-based foods. And egg scrambles, frittatas and things like that. If you eat 90% of your food in terms of soup, salad, scrambles, and shakes, you're getting this protein, fiber, and water. You're gonna feel satiated. You're gonna have less cravings. Your energy is gonna be more stable. Now, the truth is, You, Rob, me, probably everyone listening, no one wants to live off of broccoli and chicken breast the rest of their life. So to the soup, salads, scrambles, and shakes, you add enough, but not too much of salt, sugar, starch, fat, and alcohol. Enough, a sprinkling, a taste to make our food enjoyable, but not throw our heck out of check. And this becomes the beginning playbook of what people want to do. First, Get heck in check. Realize when it goes out of check that this is stressing out the metabolism. Eat primarily protein, fiber, and water foods, soups, salads, scrambles, and shakes 90% of your meals to stabilize heck. And then because we want food to be enjoyable, we want to live our lives, we don't want to be thinking about food all the time because that's a stress in and of itself. Add salt, sugar, starch, fat, and alcohol in small amounts enough to where you can enjoy your meals, but not so much where you start to overeat. And this takes practice. And it's gonna be a little bit different for each of us. For example, I have certain buffer foods that I like and certain trigger foods that are bad for me. And this is a good concept to understand. So once you have your protein, fiber, and water, your soup, salad, scrambles, and shakes, and you're eating your alcohol and your fat your starch and your salt your sugar sparingly, you also want to know which foods Help you. For example, I'll ask you this, Rob. Let's imagine if you ate dinner, right? Let's say you have a dinner of steak, vegetables, and a baked potato. And I'm going to either give you a glass of wine or not. Now, if I give you a glass of wine with that meal, are you more or less likely to be more satisfied and not have dessert? Are you more likely to have dessert if you have a glass of wine, or are you less likely? Are you more likely to drink a whole bottle of wine, or does the wine sort of make you eat less of the potato? Do you know?
0: I'll go to the whole bottle of wine and skip the dessert.
1: Okay. So, think about this then. So, Rob says he'll go to the whole bottle of wine. So. Drinking wine for him is probably a trigger food because it triggers him to drink a bunch more wine. Now, if he could stop at one glass and not have the dessert, then wine is actually a healthy, good food for him because he does enough, but not too much. I'm sort of the opposite of you, Rob. If I have a glass of wine with dinner, I don't need the baked potato or the dessert. And it satisfies me. Same thing, you never know people, there's people who will have like, I'm not like this, I'm opposite of this, but you know, people who will eat like a, Hershey's Kiss at like three o'clock, like one or two of those little tiny Hershey's Kisses at three and feel fine. Yeah. Well, if I did that, I'd eat the whole bag of Hershey's Kisses, plus go get a donut afterwards, plus get a large pizza. It would trigger all these cravings. So that's a trigger food for me. But wine is a buffer food for me. For some people, having a spoonful of peanut butter is a buffer food and helps them eat less. For some people, it's a trigger food. So in addition to sort of eating this soup, salad, scrambles, and shakes, and then adding enough but not too much of these other foods, we also want to focus on all the buffer foods that people might say are bad. They might say, you know, Jay, don't have wine. But for me, wine helps me eat better. For some people, a Hershey's Kiss helps them eat better, not worse. And we have to honor these individual metabolic differences where we are each metabolically unique. We are each have different stress sensitivities and psychological sensitivities, and we each have different personal preferences. So each of us, when it comes to metabolism, need to become more like a metabolic detective rather than a dieter.
0: So the buffer food is the food that will give you the variety, satiate you, but not make you go all in like a trigger slash domino food will like a Hershey's Kiss if you fall into that
1: category. Absolutely. And we need to know. So anyone listening to this right now who's interested in this concept, I would write down your three trigger foods that you know when you have them you're off the rails. And I would write down your three buffer foods that you know when you have them, you are far better able to keep heck in check. And don't judge them based on what Rob or I think, like whether we think it's healthy or not, judge it based on how your body responds to it. And that's what we should be doing.
0: I have to think about this, but there are some foods where I'm, as you're explaining this, where I'm thinking about and going... I can, I can actually hear myself saying, I just want a bite of that. That's all I want. One bite. And I really just want a bite. And there's other ones where I'm like, I'm only going to take a bite and then the bag of potato chips is gone. Yeah. So yeah, I'm totally with you. Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit, move over to hormones and hormone imbalance. A lot of men, particularly and I don't know how uh, you would certainly know a lot more about uh, what women are complaining or issues that are coming to you for, but I know a lot of men are now getting their blood checked for low testosterone levels. Mm -hmm. And the thing that has always struck me about that, and I'm, I'm not sure if I just think about it the wrong way or not, but if testosterone, quote, naturally goes down as we age, should we replace it if that's how we have evolved?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and you know it's funny because I, I'm I just I'm 44. I'm getting ready to turn 45, and one of the things that happens all the times I get these calls, Jade, from my bros, right? <laughs> like they're like, I, yep. I really need to talk to you something's going on. I know immediately what's happening. They're so stressed, their erections are becoming less firm, softer, they're not as responsive as they were, and they're terrified about this. And yes, one of the first things that we will do in that case is we will get a testosterone level checked. Now, to answer your question, yes, in natural settings, right, we will Uh, As we age, testosterone levels will go down. However, I'm seeing low testosterone levels and erection issues now in guys. You know, I had a guy who was 25 dealing with this, which to me, I'm just like, wow. And part of it is... The obesity epidemic and part of it is the diabetes epidemic and if we go back and look at anthropological data in modern day hunter gatherers, these individuals have higher testosterone levels than Western men so there's a very strong argument that uh, testosterone therapies, raising our testosterone levels up to be more in line of what a young man would be are highly beneficial to us. I've looked at this up and down it 's part of it 's one of my uh, specialties, endocrinology of male and female hormones, sex hormones. And I believe testosterone therapy is uh, an anti-aging a treatment. Uh, I don't think that all men should be on it, though. And also, men need to be very careful because they think very wrongly. And this is very much uh, prevalent in the natural medicine world. This is where natural medicine can kind of go wrong, that testosterone is the only thing that's going on with erections. Uh, erection has a, is a really interesting thing because in the penis, we have receptors for estrogen and testosterone and other hormones. And so what we now know is that erections are this complicated orchestration of many different hormones. Too little estrogen and too much estrogen can cause a problem. Now, when you take testosterone, you can get what's called aromatization of that testosterone into estrogen, creating too much. Sometimes when people go on testosterone, their erections get worse because of this. And so you always again we go back to your question before about, you know, don't we start with lifestyle medicine first and foremost? Absolutely. And most of the time you can restore testosterone levels pretty easily with losing weight, picking up resistance training, up in your protein intake, making sure your micronutrients are adequate, making sure that you're not decreasing a macronutrient like carbohydrates too low. For example, the keto diets right now are all the rage. You'll frequently see people who on, who are on keto diets and their testosterone levels drop. And so that is what we want to be looking at. But from my perspective, when you're not able to raise testosterone levels, you know, with natural sort of therapies, um, I'm a a big fan of TRT uh, for men as an anti-aging strategy. TRT means testosterone replacement therapy. And this is very different than anabolic steroids. Anabolic steroids, what we're essentially doing is we're going supra-physiological. So the normal testosterone on a lab test would be 300 to 1,000. With TRT, what we're doing is we're taking someone who might be in the hundreds or the 200s or the 300s or 400s and having low testosterone symptoms, erection issues. The big symptom, by the way, for most men who are low testosterone is, uh, you know, as men, we have this idea that we, we just want to win at something. It's part, like women will call it the male ego, but we want to feel alive. We want to be great at something. We want to win. We want to feel like we're making progress. Testosterone makes us feel that way. It gives us drive and ambition and makes us want to achieve as men. Once we become lethargic, depressed, and lose that drive, it's a good indication our testosterone levels are low. But with TRT, what we're doing is we're not going super physiological. We're just trying to get the testosterone back up to 700, 800 or near the physiological range, which is just essentially what it would be anyway in sort of a a hunter gatherer or someone living a natural lifestyle. And so hopefully this gives you sort of the nuance here, but I did want to sort of bring up, it is a trend. I'm really glad you brought this up because it's something that is coming up again and again and again with men. And I work with both men and women in many capacities, including in romantic coaching and things like that. And you hear women all the time and men all the time complaining about this erection issue. And testosterone replacement therapy does not always solve it. Just real quick, if you're a man or you're a woman who has a man who's dealing with this, what you really want to get is you want to get testosterone tested, you want to get free testosterone tested, and you want to get high sensitivity estrogen Tested as well, and what I'm finding in my clinical practice is that it is really the total testosterone to estrogen ratio that we want to be looking at, and we can manipulate that with TRT and then other sort of natural therapies that will either increase or decrease aromatization of testosterone to estrogen, if that makes sense.
0: Okay, so two. It does. So two questions. One is if the TRT is helping you get back to 700, let's say as using that as an example. Is that 700 number for the average man overall, or is that a number for somebody that's 30, 40, 50, or 60?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. That's typically going to be a number for someone who is in their 20s and 30s. It's a young male number, although this is really interesting because anthropological data, some tells us that normal testosterone levels for young men are more like 1200 to 2000. And some people, you know, basically say that this is what the normal should be. You don't ever really see that very often in a modern Western man. Uh, and so essentially some people would argue that those numbers are even too low, but certainly I've seen it's really interesting. It's all over the place because I've seen men in their fifties and sixties with testosterone levels 700, 800. And I've seen men in their thirties with testosterone levels at like, 300, right? And 200. And so it really is interesting. It has to do with genetics. It has to do with lifestyle. It has to do with a number of different things. And us as men right now, we have to be aware of the fact that our environment is swimming, literally swimming in estrogens. And so a lot of us in this field are kind of wondering, how come we have so many of these young men showing up with low testosterone? It's obesity. Yes. It's also an environment that is swimming in estrogens, estrogens leaching off of plastics, estrogens from persistent organic pollutants from industrial runoff and things like that. And so there's a lot going on here. But I think to your, your point, I think what you're getting at is what is normal right across the board? And I would argue, and some people would argue if, if we had a panel of people here, they would argue. For and against what I'm going to say here, but I would argue that a healthy man should have a healthy testosterone level all the way into his 80s, 90s, or until he dies. He should optimize testosterone levels. And TRT should be the last resort, but I'm a big fan of if you can't do this through lifestyle uh, and you're not feeling vital as a man anymore, then that is a wonderful option. If I was uh, advising all the men listening to this, I would be getting, even young men, I would go ahead and get a testosterone level now while you're young and feeling good so that you can essentially say, this is the level where I should be. And yes, I would advocate as an anti-aging strategy to make sure you try to keep that testosterone at that level your entire life.
0: So in trying to keep the number, let's let's just use 700 as an example. As we age, we know we know that it's definitely going to go down. Let's say that we have a baseline and we know that, you know, in our tw- in our 20s or 30s we we're at 700. Now we're in our 50s or 60s and we're at 400. So we go, okay, now I'm in the situation I got to do something. So if I understand it, if I understand you correctly, you're saying the TRT is not the first choice. The first choice is to handle the other things like obesity, perhaps put in things like resistance training and see if you can do some things that way. If you can't, then go to TRT. And in that case, if you go to TRT and it raises it back up, which I'm sure it will, what are the side effects that are going to happen if cuz you know, there's, there's a there's a yin to every yang, right? Mm-hmm. So when you do that and it goes up, what are the side effects that somebody's going to notice for the price that they have to pay to get back up to 700?
1: Yeah it's a great question, and uh, I have a really good answer for that that will make most people happy. At the level optimizing TRT inside the normal physiological range, this is bioidentical testosterone. looks just like the testosterone your testes would be producing. There are virtually no side effects, with one that I already mentioned being the biggest one. Some people who go on TRT to restore erectile function are disappointed. In that it doesn't make a difference for them or not as strong as they want. Most people with erection issues who go on TRT will see those erections, the quality of the erections go up, but not all. But there's virtually no side effects to this because you're essentially just putting in your natural bioidentical testosterone into a system that was used to that to begin with. And by the way, the reason why you want to get your levels done, because, you know, think about it this way. Rob right now might be up near 1,200 naturally for testosterone. So, So as he ages, maybe maybe you go down to 800, 700, Rob, and you feel great. That's good, but what about if I'm at 700 now and as I age, I go down to 400 to 300? That can begin to become an issue for me, and we now know that low testosterone increases the risk for cardiovascular disease and stroke for men, and that it's starting to be pretty clear that adding TRT back in is now protective. I've seen this over and over again with men who are having high hemoglobin A1Cs and high fasting blood sugars and high triglycerides, which for those of you who aren't doctors, this just means it looks like they're pre-diabetic or diabetic. They also show low testosterone in the hundreds or two hundreds, which at that level needs to be Uh, Fixed, And then you fix that testosterone and all of a sudden without doing anything else, no changes in diet or anything else, you'll see the hemoglobin A1c come down, the fasting glucose come down, you'll see belly fat being shed. And so there's a lot going on here. But to your point, and I I think I I love the way that you're dealing with this because I do think it's the way that people should. You have to take a cautious approach here. You can't just jump into drugs. Yes, there are minimal side effects when you do this from the perspective of restoring Normal function. However, what we really would like is to get the body doing that itself. And oftentimes, I would say, in, you know, probably 40% of the cases with low testosterone, you don't need to go to TRT. You know, it's pretty easy to fix lifestyle wise. And then the other 60%, they're, a, they're, Typically not able to do the lifestyle, which is why it's not working. But there is a certain percent—I don't know what it would be—you know, maybe twenty percent, thirty percent—who are going to probably need uh, this anti-aging strategy if they want to feel good and optimal as they age. And so, sort of that's my take on it. And I do believe um, we're getting to the point where it's pretty clear the consensus that is this is not just um, something that is uh, you know sort of useful for symptom management, but it, it may actually be protective against um, the, the chief killers in men as they age. All right. So this question is going to come out of left field, but how much of a role do you think
0: pornography, you know, with guys just jacking off constantly now since it's on the Internet? how much of a role is that playing in this? Because I keep seeing more and more studies, particularly in the Navy and military, they're having to ban it on ships, et cetera, because there's so many physiological effects as it relates to testosterone. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely do. I mean, this is, you and I are sort of uh, into the same kind of research and reading. And here's the interesting thing about porn. Porn can be useful for men. And actually it's funny. They've several studies. I really like it. You know, it, the gym, they've done studies where they look at watch a motivational video, you know, listen to some hardcore, you know, Conan or Rocky music, watch porn, do many different things. And what they found is erotic stimuli that you watch without ejaculation as a man can actually boost testosterone levels and increase uh, your workout performance. Uh, This is really cool. However, what a lot of men are doing like you're saying is they are especially young men they are watching porn and and ejaculating multiple times per week and sometimes multiple times per day and what this is going to do is desensitize the brain and the erectile apparatus it's also going to desensitize the you know sort of nerves in the penis and so what ends up happening is this erotic stimuli uh when you get a real uh, sex partner <laughs> What's going to happen is you can end up running into issues because it's not stimulating enough. You also can begin to deplete, and for lack of a better term, deplete sort of the hypothalamus, pituitary, gonadal axis, this whole system from brain to penis, where it's basically you have the brain effects, the Biochemistry effects and the blood flow effects, the brain and biochemistry effects can be down regulated from someone who is constantly stimulating themselves to ejaculation and constantly exposing themselves to porn now this research is mixed there are there are several studies showing that porn isn 't an issue, but I have seen this enough in the research like you have and seen it enough clinically with men that I work with to advise against uh, you know sort of constant Stimulation to ejaculation. However, I have used and seen porn be really useful for the men that I work with based on these other studies where if you're going to use porn and, you're, and use it as an erotic stimulation without you know getting yourself off. And this actually can perhaps heighten uh, eroticism and make things better. When you're around your girlfriend, because you're more charged up and ready, and it also may raise testosterone levels. And so hopefully that gives men, uh, you know, sort of a different direction to go where it's not just stay away from porn, but know how to use it. Yeah, I mean,
0: you know, look, it, when when you and I were coming up, we, we had to go into, you know, put a raincoat on and go into a video store to get it. Now it's, you know, now you got a 20 year old that can, you know, get it on his, on his telephone. And, you know, when he's having some kind of intimate relationship, he's trying to figure out, you know, where are the two 20 year olds having a pillow fight in my bed? Like, that's not, you know. You
1: know I mean? <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, that brings up a whole other issue, right? <laughs> the idea that uh, young guys don't actually know what sex sexual relationships are like now. You're right. They think that it's going to be you know this crazy you know pornography stuff that's a whole other issue that's just it is really funny it's almost like they don't know how to have real sexual intimacy because porn has sort of turned it into this sort of fantasy land that doesn't resemble much of what real life is like. No, it doesn't at all. Okay, so switching gears, let's move into workouts a
0: little bit. You've been in the personal training world for over 25 years now. You've seen a lot of things done wrong. Based on what you now know in your 40s, how many days per week and how much time do you think that the average, let's say 30 to 50-year-old guy or girl should be spending in the gym if they want to drop 10, 20 pounds?
1: Yeah, it's, that's such a great question. And I have a very clear answer for everyone here. There is something called non-exercise-associated thermogenesis, N-E-A-T, NEAT. And there's something called exercise-associated thermogenesis. This just means non-exercise-associated thermogenesis means all the movement that you do that is not exercise walking, you know, taking out the garbage, having sex, unloading the dishwasher, fidgeting, all of that kind of stuff. And exercise associated thermogenesis is the amount of calories you burn during exercise. What we now know is that non-exercise associated thermogenesis is about 15 to 20% of total changeable metabolism, while exercise associated thermogenesis is only about 5 to 10%. In other words, most of the bang for your buck is going to come from movement. Walking. We humans are not built to run, but we are built to walk and move. And this is why if you have someone move to Manhattan, they'll lose 10 pounds pretty much right away. Or someone in Paris, all those people are lean because they're walking all the time. So walking comes first. Get yourself a step counter, 10,000 to 20,000 steps per day. 5,000 steps is going to be about an hour for somebody. It's a cumulative step count. So you don't have to do it all at once. But by the way, your metabolism does not care if that's not convenient for you. That comes first. And then that's not necessarily going to make you look like an athlete though. That will definitely help you lose weight though. It lowers cortisol. It sensitizes the body to insulin. It's a very hormonal centered activity. So you walk, 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 and then exercise primarily with weights. If you want to look athletic, Three times per week. Typically, if you've got your NEAT, your non exercise associated thermogenesis, this walking in place, you don't really need more than three times per week if you're a beginner. Now, if you're someone like myself who is a conditioned and likes to train, then five to six times per week and you want to be watching your heck. Is your exercise throwing your heck out of check, your hunger, energy, and cravings? Here's what we know from the research we know that oftentimes, people's cheesecake and pizza habit is coming from their over-exercising habit. Sometimes exercising too much can make you eat too much. And so what you want to do is you want to walk like crazy, walk as much as possible, and exercise just enough, but not too much. Starting to sound familiar, isn't it? Just Mm -hmm. like we talked about with nutrition. And so I would say for the average beginner, three times per week. I wouldn't typically go over five times per week unless you just love exercise. If you're exercising five times per week and you're not getting the results that you want, it's an issue of food first and movement second. I have this pyramid that I'll teach you guys real quick if you want to understand metabolism. Base of the pyramid, I call it the four Ms. The base of the pyramid is mindset. You have to reduce stress. The next level up on the pyramid is movement. You have to move. This is not exercise. It's just walking. The next level up is meals, what you're eating. And the next level up is metabolics, exercise, and things like that, drugs and supplements. Most people, They think that they're going to get the results by going meals and metabolics, meals and metabolics. But that's at the very top of the pyramid. What you really need to be working on is mindset and movement, mindset and movement. So isn't it funny that everyone spends all their time trying to get results by doing metabolics, working out, working out, working out, when really there's three other things that are more important than that, mindset. Lowering stress is what I mean by mindset, you know, hot baths, Epsom salt baths, sex and physical affection, long, relaxing walks, meditation, massage, all of that stuff, time at the sauna, spa, you know, time doing creative pursuits, painting, listening to music, all of that. That stuff comes first to take the stress off the metabolism, then walking next, then meals. We talked about that soup, salad, scrambles and shakes, then metabolics. Right, three to five times per week. If you're exercising that much and you're not getting results, I can guarantee you those mindset, the movement and the meals piece is the problem, not the metabolics.
0: Okay, so let's talk about Bulletproof. I saw on one of your blogs that you mentioned Bulletproof and I wanted to ask you about it. I just did a live podcast at the Bulletproof Labs in Santa Monica. I live here in Atlanta, but I go go to LA a lot. I was blown away by the facility. But I just can't tell what's real and what's marketing. And I wondered what your thoughts are on the promises that they make with their equipment. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I I live in Santa Monica, so I'm actually right down the street from um, Bulletproof Labs. You know, here's the thing, and I've been on... uh, Asprey's show as well. You know, he he basically does the bulletproof stuff. There's a lot of good information in there, certainly. Uh, pr- way more good information than bad, in my opinion. Most people who pick up the books and do the lifestyle things are going to be far better off. However, from my perspective, I also think it is a lot of marketing hype. I'm a I'm a very uh, science based, evidence based individual, and so for me, I'm all for biohacking and playing detective with ourselves. But I also Want to look at stuff and essentially say, all right, let's not make these huge wild claims without having the science to essentially back it up. And I think that is the case with this, this stuff. A lot of this stuff is, um, things that may do exactly what they're saying they do, but they haven't been studied. And so the way I handle this stuff is I say, oh, that's great. It's interesting. I'm glad someone's out there doing it because one day we'll study it. But then I say, you know, um, I'm skeptical of it until I see something that is more objective and not based on marketing hype and the amount of money you're bringing in to tell me if it's effective or not. Let's look at, for example, um, just the bulletproof coffee as an example of this. Right. It it is relatively cheap and relatively effective for some people to make their own coffee and, you know, put, uh, you know, coconut oil in it or butter in it. There's not that much big of a difference between heavy whipping cream uh, in coffee and butter and coconut oil, except for some of the different fatty acids like caprylic acid and uh, things like that. So do you need to go buy MCT oil to stick in your, as a supplement to put in your coffee? No, you don't. If you want fat in your coffee, you can add butter, you can add cream, you can add coconut oil. Now, each of these are slightly different because they have slightly different fatty acids, but that's the way I look at it. Now, is it effective and should you do it? Well, here's my take on it. If if you do it and it Keeps your heck in check. And as a result of doing it, you eat less and healthier for the rest of the day. Great. However, if you're doing it and just adding in this extra fat into coffee and then eating your standard diet on top of that, then it's not a good thing. You're just adding extra calories in, you know, so those, those are the kind of things that, you know, I think people need to be aware of. And this is why I often say there's only one rule in my mind to natural health and fitness and nutrition. And most people don't like this rule, but it is do what works for you. They don't like that rule because as humans, we, w- we crave certainty. We want a cookbook. We want, we want to say, hey, Rob, hey, Jade, tell me exactly what to do. And it simply does not work like that. You're uniquely different metabolically, psychologically, and in your personal preferences. You have to honor that. And so when you're looking at bulletproof or any of this kind of stuff, from my perspective, it's like, sure, Go ahead and try it. See how it works. You know it's working if three things happen. One, your heck is in check. You're feeling vital. Two, your body composition is changing in the right direction or staying in a healthy place. And three, your blood labs are improving and your vital signs are improving, things like blood pressure, uh, you know, uh, blood sugars, those kinds of things. If you get those three things right, heck in check, body composition in a healthy range and healthy vitals. I really don't care if you're eating Skittles and donuts, that's the right program for you. Now you and I Rob would laugh at that cuz we're like no one's going to get there with Skittles and donuts, but you don't need bulletproof to get there. There are many different things to do if you want to try it, great, but that's sort of my my take on it.
0: So so you're basically the over the overriding theme, theme that I see here is be your own detective. Be your own Sherlock Holmes and assess on a daily basis whether or not you're feeling hungry, where your energy is, where your cravings are. If one of those three are out, try something different, tweak it, and see if you can get those three in check. And that's a prescription that is custom to you.
1: Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I don't know how much you uh, are interested in Bruce Lee, the mm-hmm. actor, the philosopher, the martial artist, but he has a saying that I love and I oftentimes quote, absorb what is useful, discard what is not Add what is uniquely your own. This is essentially what we should be doing in natural medicine. And by the way, I think if, Asp- if Dave Asprey was here, he would say this is essentially what the biohacking is. This is what essentially he's doing. That's why I kind of I, I do like that he's brought this to the forefront because he is essentially saying, hey, you can be your own detective. You can be your own biohacker. I do think the marketing, in my personal opinion, goes way overboard. But hey, if if that means we'll one day study it and prove it right or wrong, I'm all for it. And yep. by the way, I'll say this to Robin, you know, anybody who's a creator, you know, I respect and admire, you know, anyone who's out there doing their work, I respect and admire, you know, I think it's, it's uh, something that most people are terrified to do. Most people simply won't do what, for example, you're doing, uh, you know, with the work that you're doing with your podcast, you know, I, I oftentimes say to myself, you know, if people understood the amount of hate that <laughs> a lot of people in this field get, most people simply don't have the stomach for it. So I admire and highly respect people like yourself, people like Dave Asprey, people like anybody who's out there doing the, their thing. I would, however, then say and be honest about it and say, I do wish that we were all. Uh, You know, a little bit more honest uh, in our marketing and hopefully that will happen over time.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, look there, there, it is not a criticism to say that the guy is a marketing genius. I mean, I'm, I am, you know, high five and I'm all over the place. I just want to, I just want to figure out which of the 47,000 products that I need to buy and use. But you, you answered that, but you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Bruce Lee, and that's a good segue into sort of the next question I wanted to ask you. And that's on uh, stoicism, which I know you're into.
1: Yeah, um, very much so.
0: Yeah, I'm a little bit late to the stoicism party, but I'm now starting to embrace it. And I'll, you know, I'll be honest with you, I listened to uh, Tim Ferriss talk about it for a few years, and every single time he talked about it on his podcast or his blog or whatever, I just, I did the best I could to get into it. And I just shut it off because I was like falling asleep. It just wasn't my thing. And for whatever the reason is now, it has caught me at the right time. And I think the right person, the gateway drug for me was Ryan Holiday. And his his book Daily Stoic and I started reading the principles and his interpretation every morning when I'm fresh. I can't do it at the end of the day, but if I do it at the beginning of the day, I I can absorb it much better. And I have been absolutely blown away by how the teachings have been affecting me. And I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are on using it sort of as an operating system for us to thrive in these high-stress environments that all of us entrepreneurs are currently living in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it really lends itself well to the entrepreneur lifestyle, and you know what I found too is like it's funny, right? When you're reading this, and tell me if this is true for you, but when you start reading stoicism, most people they'll get into it and they'll be like, "Wow, I didn't even realize I am a stoic," because most of what they teach is sort of common sense, and it's been passed down so far, you know, throughout the ages. It's it it, there's pieces of it in every self help book you've ever read. So someone like yourself, who's well read, who thinks a lot, I can imagine you're constantly finding where you're like, Wow, I mean I didn't really understand that this is what stoicism is, but this is a belief system I've had for a very long time. I hear that all the time where people go, it's sort of the no duh effect when mm-hmm. you're reading um stoicism. That's the opening, but then you get these things, these gems that you're talking about inside this where you'll you'll read things by, you know, Marcus Aurelius where he's, you know, talking about the idea that, you know, during your day you're going to run into, you know, liars and cheats and scandalous people and rude people. And, and he says, and the best revenge is not to be like that. And you get like these gems that you're just like, this immediately fits into, um, you know, getting, getting a comment on, you know, in social media by a troll, mm-hmm. you know, stoicism comes, it, is so poignant for those things. Or when we're sort of feeling down or, Uh, stressed or feeling like we have this uh, fear or we're we're afraid we're going to fail, we can go back to stoicism and essentially say, look, the pain is the path. The suffering is the source. The obstacle is the way. There's lessons to be learned here. And once you get into that state, you start seeing, yeah, I remember that time I went through that breakup or the time I didn't get that job or, you know, the time I was suffering with that Knee injury or whatever it is. And now I, and I used some, some of the stoic philosophy. And now I'm using more and more of it. And I'm actually finding the lessons while I'm going through the suffering. This is what stoicism does. You know, sometimes people be like, yeah, now five years later, after I went through that, I can see some of the lessons. As you practice stoicism, you actually start getting the lessons as you're going through the suffering. And it's almost like you feel the pain. You know, you still feel the pain and the upset, but there's this very weird thing that happens where you're like, yeah, this sucks and it's wonderful because I'm learning so much in the moment and that shortens the gap down. That's, that's what stoicism, I think, brings to the table, if that makes sense for people. So I think it's a perfect operating system. Yeah, it does. And, and the other part of it is I think that we,
0: we have viewed what somebody who has a stoic quote unquote philosophy as being cold and withdrawn. That is not at all what I'm reading as I'm reading this stuff. It's just such a beautiful way of looking at things. And it's crazy how the concepts are so applicable to today and they're 2000 years old. I mean, it's nuts.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too. It's like Christianity, which I'm not a Christian, I'm agnostic, but Christianity came wrong right around the same time, right around the time Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, two of the most popular Stoics, were you know alive. And there's so much Stoicism. In uh, Christianity as well, as well as in, uh, you know, all the self-help and self-development books. And so anyone who's sort of skeptical of Stoicism, what you'll find as you uh, begin to look at it more closely is that you've been exposed to so many of these ideas already. And then what, what Rob was saying is really interesting because... Emotions. It's not that a Stoics say don't don't feel emotions. It's that they say don't live emotions. Don't get stuck in emotions. Don't get hijacked by emotions. But they use emotions the same way they use pain and suffering to better themselves. In a sense, I, I, I use this term I call uh, emotional alchemy. They essentially believed in using emotions. You know, so like sadness, for example, is an emotion that is a very stuck emotion. There's not much you can do with that, but anger is an emotion that has momentum to it, it has force to it. But again, the Stoics would say that's not very useful to be angry, but you can then turn anger into motivation. And drive. And that becomes very useful. And so in a very stoic way, it's not to ignore emotions. It's to use emotions the same way you can use your pain and your suffering and don't live emotions or get stuck in emotions or let your passions hijack you. And that's a big misunderstanding about stoicism as you brought up. Yeah, for sure.
0: All right. Well, look, let's take, let's take the emotions on the other side and let's move on to the play hard section of the show, which I really define as anything outside of work. You know, we spend a lot of time on work, particularly guys like me and you We're in front of a microphone. We're in front of a computer all day long, but we don't really look into creating real fulfillment in our lives. And I know that you work really, really hard to do that. And you know, recharging and creating fulfillment looks different for everybody. I don't want to talk about what it looks like for you. So if you had a magic wand, describe what play hard would look like for you. What would the play part of your life look like?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting for me. I have two, two key needs I have. and And I think most humans have this as well. I have a need for stability and sort of certainty. And I like my space, right? I like, I need a very clear sort of uh wu-sa sort of feng shui sort of space that allows me to be creative. And so books would be around me. I have a sauna in my place. I have a gym outside where I can stretch and move. I have, you know, um my place set up in a way that allows me to have this stability and this centeredness and this calmness and this sort of just relax and chill. But on the other side of that, I I need a very frenetic A sort of push, sort of change and challenge aspect of me to feel alive. And on that side, it means things like hardcore workouts. I tend to gravitate more towards CrossFit now, not because I necessarily think it's superior to any other type of exercise, but I like the idea of challenging myself and try to perform better in Particular workouts, And then one of the things I have is something that I call a fear PR uh, PR is stands for personal record in the strength and conditioning world. If you're going to go for a PR, for example, a personal record on deadlift, you know, I could deadlift 500 pounds. So maybe I'm going 510 and I'm going for a personal record. Well, in life, I try to check, you know, track down fear PRS and fear PRS would be something like, you know, things that I don't like and do not want to do. That I have to do and challenge myself to do. For example, I used to be afraid of flying and the fear PR was to fly more and to fly longer. And so I overcame that fear by slowly flying more and to make it myself more comfortable. Initially, I started flying first class and then I started, I bought a ticket where I was in the middle Uh, You know, I did these things on purpose, short flights, long flights. And then my final sort of fear PR was an 11 hour flight, you know, sort of from L.A. nonstop to Paris. And I became uh, over became over my fear of flying and my my. Overcame my fear of travel as well. I'm now um, essentially in a place where I am uh, going to probably uh, take on another fear PR, which is swimming with sharks because I do not like the ocean and I do not like sharks. And so, to walk you through what this process would look like, in order for me to do that, I got to get comfortable with water. So, maybe my level one fear PR would be, you know, uh, learn to surf or just go out and swim in the ocean. Maybe level two fear PR would be getting certified in scuba level three fear PR four PR might be like flying over the ocean to Australia and getting in a tank and swimming with great white sharks for me. I need and have created these kinds of challenges in my life to help me feel alive. And also because I've seen the transfer over. If I can take on a fear PR like that, then I'm not as afraid of putting out a book and I'm more productive and I'm more, I feel just more alive. So this is the way that I um, essentially do this. And I'm also big on connection, man. I mean, just being with people, I just love, you know, and so I do a lot of, You know, bringing a lot of people over to my place and connecting. And I have a group of guys that I go do fear PRs with. We have a group we call the next level man and I put it on, on an event called next level man where essentially we get a group of bros who go out and we go and take on these fear, fear PRs, you know, basically out in the woods in maybe Montana or we go, you know, um, to Belize or we go recently we went to, you know, Mexico and we do these kinds of things to help me feel alive. I love how you've identified. Did you make this up by the way? Uh, the fear PR is a a concept of mine. Yes. I love
0: that. That is such a great thing. And I love how you're doing it in levels, you know, get to the water, you know, let, let the water hit your ankles. (laughs) Okay. You did it. All right. Now let's go up to your knees. You know, I love that. What is the one thing that's rocking your world now? that has nothing at all to do with work.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really hard question for me, but I think um I just I think the thing that I'm really um excited about right now is actually in the political realm. I consider myself uh I don't consider myself a Democrat or Republican. I actually don't like either one of those parties. <laughs> I tend to have a disdain for the Republican Party a little bit more, probably because I don't love our current president. But one of the things that is really got excited is um Stephen Pinker has a new book out called Enlightenment Now that I uh read. And it has turned into... uh one of the best reads, probably most important reads of my life. And just to give everyone listening a little bit of a background on this, he basically goes through the ideas of science, humanism, and progress, and essentially shows that We have uh, won in a sense. I mean, we, you know, since the Enlightenment time period, we have, you know, conquered aging to a large degree. We've conquered many diseases. We have less war and less famine than at any other time. The world is safer than at any other time in history. And he documents this very clearly through the science. And he goes through and talks about these, you know, sort of principles of science and reason. And rationality and all the different ways that we humans are sort of delusional and, uh, in our cognitive biases. And so for me, I've really, I like to chase down a lot of these research oriented ideas. And so I've been spending a lot of time since reading that book of just getting into the way our brains trick us. And it really goes back, actually, Rob, to what we talked about in the beginning about this idea of how do we become less delusional and less trapped in our old stories and use, you know, sort of science and reason to progress, not just as individuals, but also in the way that we uh, uh, touch other people. And so that is what I am so excited about right now. Of course, this is very different than metabolism work and kind of goes into self help and self development. But that's where I'm spending an awful lot of my time now just because I'm loving it.
0: Love that. I'm gonna pick up that book. What is the thing that your soul has been really calling you to do? But for whatever reason, you just haven't pulled the trigger yet.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I went through a divorce. Me and my ex are best friends, actually, still. But I basically went through a divorce. I fell in love with another woman while I was married and had an affair. And anyone who's been through that, to make a long story short, I was betraying my wife and I was being betrayed by the woman I was having an affair with at the same time. So I was in this betrayal sandwich. And whenever something like that happens, uh, again, the Stoic philosophy comes back here. While it was going on, it kind of woke me up to... To basically be like, I don't want to be this guy. I don't want to be the person who my best friend, who was my wife, I'm lying to her and she doesn't know aspects of myself. And so what happened was I went on uh, over the last six years, I went on sort of this journey. And this is part of the fear PR came out of this and sort of this personal sort of journey to become the person that I know Uh, I am sort of meant to be and I am unbelievably happy, happier than I've ever been in my life, more solid than I've ever been in my life. And then what I'm called to do now is to help people sort of get to where I've gotten to um, and to use their pain... And they 're suffering, especially in the romantic realm, because it 's one of those interesting things that is very much like it 's almost worse than you know losing someone to death because the person is still around, and we built our identities around these people to such a degree that they can destroy us. And what I am being called to do is help people understand that that destruction is exactly what is necessary to become the thing that you've always been called to be. And that is a lot of what I want to be teaching and I'm called to do now as a result of my story, if that makes sense.
0: It makes perfect sense. And for those that want to know more about what, what Jade is talking about with the affair story, um, I have an upcoming interview with uh, his ex-wife, Jill Coleman, where she went in detail about that. And I love how open the two of you guys are about that story because it reads to everybody listening as not salacious, but hey, we're human. There this was a fuck up, but here's what we learned. And let me hope that these lessons uh you can use. That's that's what I love about that story. And I and I and I'm curious to know after you listen to the interview that I had with her, what your thoughts are on it.
1: Yeah, you know, Rob, I really, I just appreciate that so much because it's, uh, it, I just think, and I know you're of this mindset as well, but if we're not here to help, then why are we here? And if we can't take those lessons and we're going to keep them to ourselves, then from my perspective, then they, then they beat us. You know what I mean? This has made me better. Jill and I are closer. We're no longer. Uh, interested romantically for, you know, just because of the things that have happened and different choices. But I love the idea of people learning from this and, you know, being able to, if they need to leave, leave in a good way. And if they, if they can stay making their relationships better. So I'm, yeah, I'm so interested to hear that. And I really appreciate your, your comments on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we are going to wrap up with our rapid-fire round. So, Jade, feel free to answer these as quickly or as slow, slowly as you like. It's basically a first thing that comes to your mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, this one. Well, this one's kind of easy for me, Morpheus. Uh, if you've ever seen The uh, the Matrix, there's a character in uh, The Matrix called Morpheus just to give people a background on this movie, real quick, Neo is the superhero of the thing, and he doesn't know that he is the superhero. He doesn't know he's the one, that he's the savior. But this guy, Morpheus, in the film, believes in him so much that more that Neo starts to believe in himself. And sometimes we need that in life, don't we? Sometimes we need someone to believe in our in us before. We can believe in ourselves, and I was lucky enough to have that from a very early age with my parents. And I would say that I pride myself on being that for other people. I am genuinely in love with the idea of helping people just make it, and I, I don't have any sort of jealousy or sort of uh, any weirdness around that. I want to help people. I want to be a Morpheus for people, and I think that finally, you know, I think my my uh, family and friends would describe me as that
0: what's one of the things that you're afraid of right now
1: <laughs> sharks in the ocean man i mean it's like it's it's a it's a weird sort of thing and i'm going to conquer that fear but that's um that's what i'm afraid of and in on one hand it's weird and on the other hand i say that's kind of cool that i don't have any of these fears around failure or any of that kind of stuff it's just sort of these these sort of um you know fears around these prehistoric things you know
0: who knows what you were in your last life?
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: What do people never ask you, but you wish they did?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You want to know what's funny about this? I, I think that I would, as a man, right? This is just, this is kind of interesting. Uh, I wish people just asked me more about myself outside of uh, my expertise. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed like the beginning of this, where you're sort of like asking me about my story and my upbringing and understanding a little bit about that versus just, hey, Jay tell me how to eat better and this and that. I find myself in the coaching role a lot and talking about my expertise a lot. And, you know, I like, I think it'd be nice to be asked a little bit more about, you know, sort of me as a person. What's the one thing that you want to get better at? Oh, you know, for me, this is always communication. I mean, I am, I'm a teacher, uh, and, uh, Communication is everything to me. And I think I'm pretty good at it, but I'm always just wanting to get better. And along with that, and probably the thing ahead of that is honesty. And uh, I'll tell you, after what I went through with my wife, you wake up to this thing where you're just like, I'm a bullshitter, I'm a liar, I'm a dishonest person. And uh, you just... You look at yourself, you're like, I don't want to be that guy. And honesty, once you make a commitment to being honest about everything, (laughs) Rob, it gets kind of weird. People can't handle it. You know what I mean? But I still, I want to get better at it because I still find myself at times, you know, doing things and saying things that are not completely accurate. You know, in result of this, I oftentimes go back. I have a lot of stories from my childhood. I've actually made it a, a point to go back and ask some of my friends. I'm like, you know, just curious is the way I tell that story, the way you remember it, yeah. or am I, you know, am I just like exaggerating? I'm like fanatical about honesty now. What and was- so,
0: was the fish really seven feet big?
1: Exactly. Because did it really I, happen this that, way? That's how
0: I saw it in my mind. I just want to make sure that you did too.
1: And it's all funny. I, it's not that I want to change it. It's just that I want to know, you know, all the, all the sort of, Untruths in my life and fix them.
0: <laughs> you know, reality is perception, right? So sometimes yeah. we gotta get we gotta get a, a gut check from somebody else to see if that's actually accurate. True. So last question: If you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like to do or have a passion for or anything else. What would it be?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The first thing that comes to mind is the idea of the fear PR. It is something I am teaching on, though, so it's not a you know, real honest answer. But I, I think this that idea of sort of uh, this fear PR concept would be something that I think would be interesting. And then, <laughs> and then if I was really going to just give it on something I just love, it would probably be Italian food. <laughs> I love that. <laughs>
0: I love that. Well, listen, this has been absolutely incredible. I could have gone on for two more hours. You're just that kind of guy that I feel like I could talk to you about anything. But more than that, you've got super actionable content. So... I'm so grateful for you taking all of this time. I know it was uh, a long time and I know we went way over. Do you have any final words, suggestions or an ask for the people that are listening?
1: No, I don't, man. Other than just to say, um, you know, thanks for creating the space and doing what you do. It's It's just amazing to me that I get to do this and completely flattered and honored that you would have me on, my friend. So thank you. You got it, buddy. Can't wait to meet you in person. Absolutely,
0: man. See you soon.